0: Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquired what he wanted to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote... His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and then jump into that text. Father, we open your word each week to to have you speak to us. to, To cut through our... Our hurry, our busyness, the noise. Just to slow our hearts and to open your scriptures and to listen. That's the spirit. We, we all come in different places, from different places, thinking about different things. But we trust that you will, through this word, speak a fresh word to us about the glory of who Jesus is. And so we ask for that. We pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the Advent season. where we're focusing on the first songs of Christmas. These songs that are, are sung, spoken, composed at the announcement of Jesus' birth. And of course, we, we in our own culture and society have a rich tradition of Christmas songs and music. And in 1944, the middle of World War II, the now famous Christmas song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, was, was written and appeared in the movie Meet Me in St. Louis. Now, this was before my time, uh, but this song, We Wish You a Little Merry Christmas, was made uh, famous to me, uh, or Have Yourself a, a Merry Little Christmas, was made famous to me in Home Alone, because it's the last uh, the last scene, Kevin has vanquished the enemies of his home, and he's by himself, he's without his, his family, and the, the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, appears. And the tune itself is sort of a somber Tune And the songwriter, Hugh Martin, uh, he wrote a very different initial lyric than the lyrics we know today, made most famous by Frank Sinatra. Here are the original lyrics, which combine what Christmas music often, or the best Christmas music often combines, which is both light and darkness. His initial lyrics went like this. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. That's dark, right? (laughs) Next year, we all may be living in the uh, living past. So Judy Garland, who was to sing these songs to me in St. Louis, was like, listen, this is too depressing. I can't sing those, those songs in a Christmas song. And so the lyrics got changed to, from now on, we'll have to muddle through somehow. And Frank Sinatra, who uh, I think his album was called like Joyous Christmas or something, he's like, listen, this is joyful Christmas. I need better lyrics. And so he changed the lyrics now to uh, hang a shining star upon the highest bough," Which, what does that even mean? Right? If you see a shining star, you probably shouldn't touch it, let, let alone like hang it on something. Like, it's, it's just a strange lyric, all starting from this, this sort of somber reflection in the midst of war and death which has become this sort of shallow, meaningless lyric statement. And I think that's that's really what we've done in many ways to our Christmas season, is take this season of great depth, of both incredible darkness and light, and turn it into something very shallow. That our culture has taken something that Christianity has always put at the heart of the Christmas season, almost completely out, which is is Christmas has almost always been a time Christians meditate on the darkness. So medieval Christians, their four Sunday Advent season covered these four topics. The four Sundays leading up to Christmas was death, judgment, that would have been this Sunday, heaven, and then the Sunday before Christmas Eve, hell. Right? Imagine us doing that this Next Sunday, or a couple Sundays from now, you bring in your family. And it's like, all right, this we're going to talk about hell, everybody. And the reason they did this the re- is because the only way the light of the birth of Christ makes any sense is if it's set against the, the, the reality of the darkness in which you and I live. And it's why uh, Presbyterian pastor, author Fleming Rutledge, she writes this, Advent is a time for making a fearless inventory of the darkness. I love that line. Advent is a time to make a fearless inventory of the darkness. And that's what Zechariah does in this song about his son, John the Baptist. There's light and there's darkness. And so this morning, uh, I want to do a two-point sermon, really meditating on the final words of his song, which is that at last, this son, his son's going to be born, that's going to prepare the way for the, for the Messiah and then verse 78, when the Messiah comes, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Lights and darkness. It's, not, it's a two-point sermon, which is, first, uh, I want to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the way John medita- or, or Zechariah meditates on the darkness of the world in which you and I live. And then secondly, I want to take a deliberate view of the sunrise. So first, a fearless inventory of the darkness. So so we only uh, heard basically the song and the context around Zechariah, this man. But I want to take like three minutes and tell you about the man, Zechariah, because that's where the Gospel of Luke begins. The Gospel of Luke actually begins with the most important day of Zechariah's life. Zechariah was a priest, and there were about 18,000 priests in, uh, in Israel at this time. And, and each priest would have uh, two weeks out of the year where they would go to Jerusalem and serve in the temple. And when you went to Jerusalem to serve in the temple, um, all the priests would gather, and there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And each day they would cast lots, and one of the priests would get the lot to get to go into the most holy place and offer the sacrifice uh, the incense to, uh, on the altar to God himself. And most likely you would never get to do this as a priest. There were too many um, priests. And so if you got your, your lot cast, it was in, you were incredibly fortunate, incredibly lucky. And so much so that you, if you ever got your lot cast, you could never do it again. So you'd only, you could only do this one time. And, and the Gospel of Luke begins, Zechariah is in Jerusalem uh, to do his duty of the priest, one of the two weeks, and he has, he has drawn the lot to go into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain where no one else could go, and offer a sacrifice of incense up to God himself. And so he does that, he enters into the holy holy. And when you, enter, when you would have entered enter, there, there would have been uh, for those of you who are with revelation, uh, you remember this series, there would have been a lampstand there, and then an altar um, as well, and then some, some bread. And when Zechariah goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, to offer the sacrifice, between the lampstand and the altar is an angel. Gabriel. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, you are going to have a son. Zechariah was old, his wife was older, and we were told that they were righteous people, they walked faithfully, they were faithful servants of God, and yet they'd been unable to have um, children. Many in this day took that as a sign of cursing from God onto your, your life. And instead, the angel says to Zechariah, no, 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 you are blessed. You are gonna have a son, and that son is going to prepare the way for the messiah. And so that's where the gospel of Luke begins. And here now at the end of chapter of Luke chapter 1, uh, the child has been born and Zechariah sings. And his song is not just a song of joy, it's a song that meditates on the darkness. In three ways. First, the darkness of the silence of God. Then when Zechariah entered into that holy place and saw Gabriel, the angel, that ended a 400-year period of silence where there was no prophet. There was no word from the Lord. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. And between Malachi and Zechariah entering into the holy place, there was no prophet. There was no unique word from the Lord. All they had was what was in the past. And so in this, in this song, Zechariah mentions twice the God has come to visit his people. That's where the song starts, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And that's where he ends, in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, a reference to the Messiah, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That, that Zechariah begins this song by saying, God, who has been distant and absent and silent, is now come to visit us. And to be clear, like, this word visit is not the word we might typically think of uh, when we think of visit maybe in this, this time of year. That, like, when you go to maybe visit your extended family, you might go in with your spouse or a friend. Like, you might go in with a safe word that, like, if I say this word, it's time to leave, right? We're getting out, right? It's, I'm, we're coming. There's a timeline. At 8 o'clock, we're leaving, right? That's, that's how it works, right? That's, visitation often at this point is, like, very, like, get in, get out. That's not the word used here, the word used here of God is it's of tending to the sick, sick. It's of of presence. It's of uh, it's it's of of, of a of a, a long extended stay. God is not just dropping in and dropping out. He's coming to stay. He's visiting. And today, friends, we find ourselves in a very similar place that Zechariah found himself. Zechariah had 400 years of silence between the last prophet to the appearance of an angel. And while I certainly don't want to, like, overlook the, the reality of the Holy Spirit, the reality of God's presence in the world today, it's been 2,000 years since this story, these appearances, these happenings, that we are waiting in silence, much like Zechariah was waiting in silence and that means, just this morning, it's, it's okay if, if you're in a season of lament during Christmas. This is a time where God's appearance and God's absence are, are most pronounced, most real to us. Where our longing for him to return and make things right is matched with this reality that he has already come among us. And if you live long enough, you will have to deal with the silence of God. His absence. And C.S. Lewis wrote two books on this topic. One, I don't really recommend to you, which is called The Problem of Pain. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's interesting, but it's, a, it's an argument. It's a philosophical argument. It's distant. It's intellectual. It's good. But he wrote another book later in his life called A Grief Observe. And it was a, a personal lament of the death of his wife. And it was so raw, so personal, he initially published it under a, a pseudonym because he was, he was nervous about people reading what he wrote under the name C.S. Lewis as if he wasn't a Christian anymore, as if, as if reading his personal laments would make people wonder, does Lewis still believe in God? But what that was was Lewis wrestling with the darkness of this loss of his wife and the silence of God in the face of it. Here's, here's to me the most powerful quote. So when you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are attempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all the other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, Silence. Advent is a time where we long for God to break his silence yet again. For Christ to return, which is why the early church spent Advent not as a time preparing for the the birth of Christ. That's already happened. But instead, the season of waiting we're in between the birth of Christ, the initial light and the coming return of Jesus. And in that, it's okay to lament. It's okay to lament those who are not with us to limit the brokenness of this world, to long and to ache for God to speak again, not through his word and not through his spirit, but to be here present, to visit us. Christmas is a time where it's okay to tap into those feelings of deep longing, of incompleteness, that we're not where we should be. And that's where Zechariah starts by saying, God has finally broken the silence. He's visiting us. So Advent deals with the darkness of the silence of God. The second thing that that Zechariah talks about is the darkness of the enemies of God. And it's mentioned twice, one in verse 71, one in verse 74, where Zechariah says, the Messiah is coming that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. And then verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God, might serve him without fear. If you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and we will, that's where we're headed next at the beginning of the year, um, three times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus promises you that if you follow him, people will hate you because of it. That there are people in the world, very often powerful people, who do not like God and therefore do not like people who are associated with him. And in this moment, people were living under Roman oppression and it was, uh, it was their hope that the Messiah would come and vanquish the Roman political power of the day, and allow Israel to be free, to worship God as they saw fit, and not be ruled over by a foreign power. And what's really interesting about Zechariah's song is that typically in the Psalms, uh, which if you ever read the Psalms, enemies are all over the place. And what happens in the Psalms, the enemies are sung about, and, and then they're defeated. God vanquishes them, he takes them out, and then sets up uh, the, uh, God's people to... Um, to, to, to be free of, of the Roman, or the, the ruling power. But that's not where Zechariah takes this song. He, he, he does like praise or celebrate the fact that God's enemies will be defeated, but he takes the end of this psalm not to the fact that Rome would be overthrown or that the political power of the day would be vanquished, but that something else would happen. And that is the, thir- the third darkness that Zechariah dwells on is the darkness of our own hearts. Right, So the typical Jewish song was the enemies are defeated, and there's a new king, and God reigns forever. But what happens instead here is this child, Jesus, the Messiah, will be, or rather John, will be called prophet of the Most High. He'll prepare the way of the Lord, and he'll do that to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This song climaxes not to the defeat of God's enemy, but to forgiveness and to mercy. And so taking a fearless uh, inventory of the darkness is not just to think about the silence of God or those who are enemies of God who might war against him, but it's to look into our own hearts. To take a fearless inventory of what's broken and dark in our own hearts. So after Gabriel uh, told Zechariah, you're going to have a son, Zechariah asked for a sign, he asked for proof. Which is, you know, not, I mean, it's like you're, you're a priest in the temple. Gabriel is actually known as one of the, uh, in Jewish uh, tradition, there were four to seven angels that actually stood in the presence of God. And Gabriel was one of them. And so the idea is like, Zechariah just doesn't get an angel, right? It's like he doesn't just get the, the post office. It's like the president himself has come to give this. I mean, it's like an important person has come to give this message. And Zechariah is like, you know, I, still, I need a little more than what you've given me. Um, and that's in contrast to Mary, right? So Zechariah is a priest, right? He's like, he's basically, like, he's the pastor. He's the guy who's get, who gets, he's the religious professional who gets a direct message from an angel in the holiest place in the entire world. And he's like, I don't, I'm not sure about this. Mary, like a teenager in the middle of nowhere, uh, who's not important, who is, uh, is female as opposed to the, the priest, which in that day, this, the, like, just could, you could not be more different. Mary believes and the priest doesn't. And so <laughs> Zechariah gets shut up um, he's not allowed to speak until, uh, until the birth of his son because of his unbelief. So Gabriel's basically like, if you want a sign, here's your sign. You don't get to say anything for the next nine months. That's your sign. <laughs> and so th- this, this tracks, honestly, with, with a theme we see all the way through Luke, which is it's always the humble, the contrite. If you remember last week, Mary's like, I, I don't deserve this. It's always those people who who are in touch with their own weakness, their own unimportance, who who get Jesus. And it's those who are so smart and self-important and arrogant and prideful who don't. And so Advent is a season to explore our own hearts and ask, what, what needs to change? What in me needs forgiveness? When was the last time you, you went before God asking for forgiveness? Hopefully, it was when we did the conf- prayer of confession earlier, right? But do you go before God? Name your sins, own them. Because if you have not dealt with the darkness of your own heart, the light of Christmas it it won't make any sense. It's just it's just shallow. It's 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 fruitcakes and precious moment figurines, or right? that's all it is. Unless you realize there's something within you that is that just puts you away from God that puts you at odds with God, and some, it's, there's something broken there. Just, it's going to keep repeating itself. It's, it's not right. It needs fixed. It needs healed. And so before we're ever ready to look at the light of Christmas, to, to meditate on the baby Jesus and what this means for us, you, you, you can't just forget the darkness. This distance, this longing for God to return. Is that, should you, have you dealt with the darkness of the silence of God? the darkness of the enemies of God, and and most importantly, the darkness of your own heart, the sinfulness, the brokenness in you. Before we're ever ready to see the light of Christmas, we have to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, or um, basically the the way uh, Tish Harrison Warren put it. She wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, which basically was my sermon, but only in like 800 words instead of like 4,000, which is what you're getting. Um, But here's what she wrote. said, our response to the wrongness of the world and of ourselves can often be an unhealthy escapism. And we can turn to the holidays as anesthesia from pain as much as anything else. We need collective space as a society to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. Only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant. Not as a saccharine act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope. And that's what Zechariah does here. It's a, def- it's a defiant act of hope song. And so we've, we start point one, we've dwelt in the darkness, right? We're wrestling, okay, what's broken in me that, that this season calls to me repent of? But now I want to take a deliberate view of the sunrise, which is funny. Even this morning, there was like a really beautiful sunrise, and we took a pause, which Andrew threw a picture of it in the, um, in the dock. It was pretty good uh, this morning um, as we, we just woke up and... and, and The sense of like a sunrise is this beautiful image of darkness being gradually overwhelmed by light. And that's the metaphor Zachariah uses to end his song. And so I want to meditate on three things. And and listen, there's not going to be anything for you to do at the end of the sermon. The end of the sermon isn't going to be, now here's, you better do this. I want you to just sit in the beauty of the light of Jesus Christ, what Christmas is. And the first is the light of the word. That after 400 years of silence, God doesn't just break into his world with a message or a book or an idea or a teaching. He breaks into the world through his own son, his own presence. So Fleming Rutledge again, she puts it like this. Every year, the Advent to Christmas momentum proclaims the God who breaks his own silence by coming in person. John the Evangelist tells us no one has ever seen God. But the only son who dwells in the bosom of the father has made him known. Christmas is the breaking in word of the silence of God. And so the the promise of Christmas is not some like bland peace or joy. It's the promise of a child who is himself the son of God. And this is why most stories that we read, that we like, that we enjoy as a culture, just rip off of this story and then sell it to make money from us. And one example is Harry Potter. Harry Potter begins with the promise of a, of a child who's come in to defeat the darkness, the Dark Lord. And that's, that's the, like, commercialized version of Jesus. That's the Jesus story. And it's what John is, or what Zechariah is singing of here when he says, uh, for he has raised up for us a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What he's saying is that he's referencing an Old Testament prophecy much like there's a prophecy of a boy in Harry Potter, a prophecy of a child of a descendant of David who would come and reign forever and defeat the darkness, the horn being a symbol of, of promise. And so Jesus is not just like he's this cute baby who we get to you know, look at and snuggle and put, put in our you know, nativity. He is a child king who is a symbol of power and is going to defeat the darkness. He's the promised king who's going to reign forever. That's, that's what this is. This is not just a, a, a shallow message of a, of a cute baby. This is a powerful king who is coming to, to war with the darkness, right? So God doesn't just break his silence. He comes as his, own, as his own son to defeat everything dark in our world. So that's the light of the world. The second, and we, we, I want to go deeper into this, the second is this, the light of forgiveness, The primary message of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is one of forgiveness. And so the very end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is with some disciples of his who actually don't know that it's Jesus quite yet. And Jesus tells them the whole point of him, like the whole point of why he came. This is what we read, the very end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Jesus says to these disciples, thus it's written, the Messiah should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. All right, like this is why I'm a pastor. We get, like the church gets to proclaim in light of Christmas the forgiveness of sins to the entire world. That is our message. That wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you feel guilty about, and Christmas is a time often when the th- our mistakes have caught us. And you can't, you can't avoid them. You can't hide from them. You can't run from them. They're there. They're present. The, the central message of Jesus is, is, I forgive you. And I would just have you asked for it? Uh, a famous uh, person in our country uh, a few, uh, maybe a year ago or so, was made famous for saying, I don't think I've ever asked God for forgiveness for anything. And, and he sort of was given a hard time about that. And yet, yeah, like, how many of us, have like meaningfully approached God and said, What's what's wrong between you and I? I, I can't I can't cover that. You have to forgive me. And that, that, that ultimately that's the that's the that's the way into Christianity. You cannot be, you cannot claim Christianity as your own if you have not first repented and said, between me and God, there is a gap that I cannot cover. There's a brokenness here, there's there's something in me that I cannot heal myself. Have you, like, have you spoken that to God? Have you named that with God? Right? So you, you, you name the darkness, you repent of it. You say, God, this is not who I want to be anymore. This is not the direction I want to walk. I want to walk in your direction. And even though I'm going to walk imperfectly, I'm, we're heading this way together. That's repentance. And in that, you ask forgiveness, right? Not on the basis of the fact you're going to, okay, this time I'm going to earn it for you. This time I'm, okay, everything else in the past is gone, but now I'm going to do it right. And that's, no, that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is, I'll probably never do it right. Probably never get the full picture, and that's why I'm coming to you not on the basis of my own works, my own rights, my own abilities. I'm coming to you solely based on this child king, Jesus, born in the house of David, who bled and died for me. And it's his basis, his basis alone. And from that moment on, that's, that's what Christianity is. That's where, it, that's where it starts. So one, have you done that? Have you walked that process? And then two, if you're a Christian, have you continued to walk that process daily? It's like, yeah, I did that once in, uh, in 1994. Um, no, that's, that is the whole of the Christian life, is coming before God and saying, there's a gap. I'm tired of this gap. I want to go in a new direction. Forgive me for that gap. God, make me new. That is the whole of the Christianity. And the beauty of Christianity is that God continually covers that gap for us. And so again, my, the only thing you maybe need to do this week is uh, is get up early, catch a sunrise, and as you're doing that, read the scriptures that just tell you, God has forgiven you, if you're in Jesus Christ. So I want to read three of them. And so again, I just want you, I just, I just want to sit in this. This is, this is what it, like the darkness is real, and yet the light of Christ is this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight one. Or Ephesians 1, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins because of the riches of his grace. Or Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you hear that and think that, okay, there's no way God can forgive me. There's no way I, I've got to earn it. There's something I have to do. Um, and Zechariah doesn't just dwell in forgiveness of sins. He, he moves. Says, no, no, if you think you have to earn this before God, you're misunderstanding what is really the heart of this passage, which is the mercy of God. The most common word in this passage from verse 57 through 80 is mercy. And so the last where I want to leave us is to dwell on the light of God's mercy. We're told in, in verse uh, in, in Elizabeth in, in the birth that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, verse 58. And then in verse 72, we read that God is, is appearing now, he's, he's visiting us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And then in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. I love the, the word tender there, it's the, it's the word guts. So because of the gut level mercy of God, something he. You know, he fe- it's, it's, it's visceral, it's real. It's not just, it's not, he's not distant with his mercy. He cares deeply. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on, on high. That, that mercy for Zechariah, it's not some bland idea of God. It's his visitation towards us. It's his kindness towards us. It's forgiveness towards us. That if you're thinking like God is in heaven, just, just waiting for you to prove it to him, you're misunderstanding who he is and what his mercy is. And if you want like the definition of this word mercy for Luke, he tells a story about what this, what this means, what this looks like, what God's mercy looks like in action, not just as an idea in our heads. Like I guess Luke tells a story to sort of define this word for us. This is that story. That there was a man who took a, a dangerous journey um, through a road that was... Um, Sort of in the midst of mountains and cliffs where, where, where caves and, and rocks made hiding places easy. And so robbers and thieves often uh, hid themselves in those places because there were so many places to hide. And So it was a da- everyone knew this was a dangerous journey to make. And so one man makes this journey, and in the middle of his journey, he's, he's attacked by robbers, by thieves. And they, they steal from him, they take everything that's his, they leave him for dead. And as, as the story goes, a couple of people walk by the man and don't, uh, don't do anything until finally a third man comes alongside, stops, uh, binds up the wounds, stops the bleeding, loads the man up on his, his donkey. He takes the man to, to an inn where he hires people to come and care for this man, to nurse him back fully to health, to not just, not just pull the man off the road, but to nurse him back to, to full healing and restoration, and Jesus ends this story and asks the question, who, who was the neighbor? Who was the better neighbor? And one of the, the men who's sitting there says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, yes, now you go and do the same. And so this, this, when we think of God's mercy, which is who he is, like in himself, we think of this, this visitation whereby he comes alongside us, us broken, bleeding, <laughs> left for dead, and he... He just does all of the work necessary to heal us and to restore us and to make us, make us new. And I think this, this word mercy, like, so, it forces us to ask the question, how, how do you see God? As a distant father that you have to work really hard to please as a robed man with a long white beard, sitting with furrowed brow or, or kneeling beside you in mercy healing you, restoring you, saving you. And we know the story of of mercy because that's where Jesus' story ultimately ends. The way he kneels beside us to heal us, to restore us, to make us new, is he goes to a cross for us. He dies for us. His healing is through his own brokenness on our behalf. And even though we've read those stories, and we'll read those stories, we're going to go into that story beginning in January. Even though we know those stories, those are 2,000 years ago. And if you've read them and you, 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 you understand what Zechariah is singing here, you long to taste the fullness of what, what Zechariah got to taste with the birth of his son, the sunrise visiting, the presence of Jesus. We long to taste the fullness of what Jesus said his coming meant, which is the dead raised, the blind see, freedom for captives, the lame walk, all of it. And we haven't seen it yet. That Advent is a time we take a fearless inventory of the darkness because we are waiting for the sunrise. And when I was in my, my mid-20s, uh, I took a long West Coast road trip with a couple of my friends. And one of the things we decided we wanted to do uh, because of the timing was to get to Crater Lake and, and watch the sunrise over it. And the lake was formed because a mountain volcano had collapsed. So the, the result is like this Crazy lake where it's like it's like inside of a volcano mountain. It's incredible, um, and we drove all night to get there. And when we got there, it's you know it's probably two or three in the morning. It was it was darkness. And let me just say, like staying up for a sunrise feels like a really romantic idea until you actually do it, and then it's like you're cold. <laughs> it takes forever. You have to be patient. You have to wait, and yet you, we get there and we look out and we know underneath the darkness is a reality and a beauty that is a wonder of the world. But you can't see any of it. And in that moment, it's all you have is you're tired, you're, it's dark, it's cold, and it's, it's, it, you have to wait. And that's the moment you and I are, are in, and yet it is, it is worth the wait. That as the sun became, uh, began to come up, right, that the darkness began to lift and the light began to show a reality and a beauty of something unlike I've ever seen. And Zechariah saw that sunrise 2,000 years ago when he saw his own son born and the Messiah follow after him. And today we sit waiting to see that silence, that darkness broken again, the return of Christ. And yet while we are much like Zechariah, sitting in the darkness waiting for the return of Christ, we we are waiting for someone who has already come, who has already given light in the midst of the darkness. He's already been to the shadow of death. And he went into the shadow of death to be raised to new life, to bring us mercy, to bring us forgiveness, to bring us salvation, to give us the sunrise. So have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. That's too dark. (laughs) Unless you don't know Jesus. And then it's reality. Judy Garland was right. We don't want to think about that. That Christmas is a time where we, remember, we are waiting. But the one with whom we are waiting for, there is no last Christmas. There is no shadow of death and there will be no darkness. He is the light and he is the sunrise and so we wait. Let's pray. Father, in this posture of waiting is hard. Doubt is, is easy, suffering becomes our reality, and, and this ache and this, this pain to see what Jesus has promised us to come to pass can be easy to, to not have faith grow in us. And so I, I pray, I pray, God, that in the waiting, we would not be led to, to place of doubt or questioning or the darkness, but we would be led Instead, to the place of, as the hymn writer says, that in haste we would see Jesus Christ return. That we would, we would want and long and, and just deeply desire the quickening return of Jesus to give us the true, final, and lasting sunrise. God, our, our, our hearts, we can't fill our hearts with that reality. We can't fill our hearts with that kind of faith or hope. And we, we, we just come before you now and plead, God, make that real for us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.